Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. exact representation of his being. Somebody say, wow. Wow. Somebody say it again. Wow. Wow. Yes. Listen, the language that heaven is speaking to reveal what God is like in these last days that we live is the language of a son. Jesus is what the Father has to say on earth today. If you look one second in the eyes of Jesus, you see who your Father has always been. And look at what it says in Hebrews. It says that Jesus, the Son, He's the radiance of God's glory. That word literally means the light flashing forth. That He's no longer hiding under a bushel or hidden behind the curtain of a veil or a shadow like He was previously. But now, unambiguously and out in the open, He's radiating and shining and beaming to show us who our God is. And it says that he is the exact representation of the Father. This word in Greek is literally character. It's where we get our word character. Imagine that. It means the exact imprint, the mold, or the template. When we look at Jesus, we see the Father with a face and a heart and hands. When we look to Jesus, we we see that God not only wrote the story, but he wrote himself into the story. Once and for all is the God of self-emptying love. And if that weren't enough, he said, we couldn't just receive that love. Then actually we would receive it in a way that the first words of Jesus were this. Now follow me. Follow me. Take my self-emptying love and follow me. And release it to the whole world. That's crazy. And this is the fullness of our Father. Jesus is the full revelation of what the whole story has always been about. And I want you to know this morning that everywhere you go, everything in creation is pointing to him. This morning, what I want us to focus on is this big idea that every experience on earth is an echo of Eden. Every experience on earth is an echo of Eden. What am I saying? I'm saying somewhere in the midst of every person you'll meet today, in the midst of every conversation, 
in every flower, in every tree, in every sunrise, in every meeting, in every traffic jam, in every annoying coworker, in every unexpected delay, in every location that you can travel for work. Psalm 19 says this, it says that creation is shouting the glory of God. That all of creation in some way is a type or an anti-type of who our God is. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. That in creation, either what you're seeing is somehow reflecting the beauty and the power and the hope and the freedom of what he's like. That's a type. Or that you're encountering something that because of its absence or because of its distortion, it's revealing who he isn't and where we desperately need him. That's an anti-type. Most importantly, it means this. I'm so glad you got up this morning and came to church, but did you know you didn't need to come to church this morning to worship? Did you know that? Uh, you didn't need to come to work. Don't leave. You're here. <laughs> See, we don't, we don't come here to check an item off a list, though. No, we come here in a celebration of what it is to be the body of Christ and the bride of Christ together. We come here because how can we not? Right? How can we not be together if our God is this good? We come here together to raise a banner and a declaration for our city to say, come on in, our God is good. But you don't have to come here to worship. No, every conversation, every person, and every moment is an invitation to worship because every experience on earth is an echo of Eden. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, it says it this way. It says, for the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, not we think, not it could be, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have received the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's it saying? It's saying this, that every person you meet is groaning. It means the person looking back at you and you looking in the mirror is groaning. And the groaning within us can't be fulfilled by likes or shares or promotions or possessions. It won't be satisfied by marriage vows or six-figure salaries or that new car or that tool or that toy or that vacation. It won't be met by the applause of man, but thank God... It can't be drowned out and threatened by the criticism of man. See, all of us have an incessant groaning for the fullness of adoption from a father that calls us beloved. Look at what it says in Romans 8. It says that the world is groaning for hope. Now, I want you to know the bully's bravado and the slavery songs you're hearing are not just a bunch of people whining. No, they're groaning for hope. In fact, it goes further than this, and it says that what they're groaning for and what they're longing for is us. They want the, the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. And praise God in all of creation. He's written roadmaps over everything he's made to show the way back home. But most importantly, I want to say this. Those on planet Earth who choose to know who they are and to know whose they are. The whole world becomes our mission field. See, when you no longer have to go and do because he's already done it all that is finished, then you're free to be. And I want to say this this morning. When you know that you're beloved, you're free to be love. When you know you're beloved, you're free to be loved.
And as we continue in this Unveiled Love message series, there are two figures in the Old Testament that to the people of God, they represented the Father arguably more than any other. The first was Moses. See, we look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament was referred to as the Law and the Prophets. And so Moses, who comes in, he was the great liberator and redeemer of the people and the giver of the law. So they looked to Moses. Then they looked to the prophets. And I would argue, because he showed up later on a mountain with Jesus, that the father of the prophets was none other than Elijah. And he stood to call people back to the law that they had left. It was the law and the prophets. And interestingly enough, when Jesus came to the earth to unveil what the story has always been about, he started with Moses. In John chapter 5, he talked to the religious leaders. He said this, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. And then again on the Emmaus Road, he says this, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in this world where all of us are groaning, I want to look this morning to three places Moses came as an echo of Eden. More importantly, I want to look at three places that the Father right now, through Jesus Christ, is stepping into our groanings to satisfy us. The first is this. The Father came to free struggling hearts. The Father came to free struggling hearts. Now, if you were to ask people when they think about Moses, what Moses is most known for, most people aren't even going to picture Moses. They're going to picture Charlton Heston, right? Hoisting up the Ten Commandments. They'll be like, that's what Moses looks like. He's a white dude that runs the NRA. That wasn't Moses. If you talk to them about Moses, they'll think of the showdown with Pharaoh. They'll think of him leading the people out of Egypt, or that, that scene where the, the Red Sea splits and they walk over on dry ground. See, Moses in the Old Testament is synonymous with freedom. But while Moses represents freedom, I want to tell you, Jesus is freedom. John chapter 80 says this, he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When we look to the Old Testament, Jesus says, it's always been about me, but we've never known how deep it goes. I want to tell you, you look and you see that Moses is the shadow where Jesus is the substance. And the Father came to free struggling hearts. I'll tell you what I mean. We look to the life of Moses and Jesus, and this is what you see. We can pull up that first slide there. That Moses was born into enemy territory. That enemy territory for him was Egypt, where the Israelites were enslaved. And when Moses was a baby, because his birth was a threat to the kingdom that reigned, they tried to kill him as a child. And so Moses was hidden. In fact, he was hidden in Egypt. Do you remember this? They put him in a basket and sent him down the Nile. So he was hidden in Egypt so that out of Egypt he would rescue his people. In the same way, Jesus was born into enemy territory. To a kingdom of humanity that had given way to sin and pride and violence. And because his birth threatened the kingdom as it stood, Herod tried to kill him as a child. He heard that one was born king of the Jews, and he couldn't have that because he was king. So, what happened in the story? Mary and Joseph took their child, and maybe you missed this in the pages. That's why when people say the Bible's boring, I said, no, you just weren't paying attention. You blinked. Where did Mary and Joseph take Jesus? They took him into Egypt. See, Egypt represented slavery. Why? So that out of Egypt, he would come and rescue the world. Moses' life continues, and you see this, that Moses grows up in Egypt. 
He grows up in a kingdom of power, and from the throne, from the palace, he saw the injustice of his people, and his people were Israel. And so Moses was moved to action. Sadly, though, Moses chose what he saw. He chose empire, chose bravado, chose violence, chose coercion. He chose force. He chose to murder because that was the way in Egypt you got things done. You silenced the voice of your enemies. And so his people rejected him. And at the end of the story, Moses started at the throne, but he fled into the desert. And isn't it interesting? When Jesus comes on the scene, as soon as he's baptized by John the Baptist, where do we find him? He hasn't started in the throne room. In fact, Philippians says that he left the throne room and he emptied himself of all that love to come down. And when his ministry starts, where does he start? The same place Moses fled. He starts in the desert. And in the desert, Jesus sees the injustices coming to his people. But his people aren't just one tribe. It's all of humanity. And Jesus is moved to action. It's what caused him to bankrupt heaven to come down. But listen, Jesus succeeded where Moses failed. Because Jesus rejected empire. He wouldn't even turn a stone to bread to feed himself. Instead, he came in self-emptying love. And as a result, what happened? He was exalted to the throne with a name above every other name. You see here, Moses is an anti-type of Jesus. The story continues, though. It gets better than that. Moses becomes a shepherd out in the wilderness. And in this place, he encounters the God who is the I Am in a burning bush that tells him, take off your shoes. The place that you're standing is holy ground. And it takes a lot of coercing, a lot of stuttering, a lot of fighting. But finally, Moses relents, and he risks his life to go into Egypt to set the captive free. <coughs> we come to the pages of Jesus, and we find out he didn't become a shepherd, though he is the good shepherd. And it's not just that. He's also the gate for the sheep. He's the one who opens the way and protects his own we finally come to the page of Jesus that he himself is the I am. Jesus is the burning bush, the all-consuming love of God. What did Hebrews say? He's the light that is beaming, unambiguous. Jesus, as the burning bush, says the reason that he came was not to risk his life, but to give it. So where we find Jesus is that he is presently stepping into the Egypts we have put ourselves in to set us free. We continue in the story, we see this. That Moses stood before the king of the day. And he showed mighty powers and wonders to show this is the power of God. But they refused to listen to him. And finally, at great cost to themselves, though Moses pleaded again and again and again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And at great cost to themselves, they did it to themselves. And it cost the death of their firstborn. The people were set free. But then Jesus, who comes and offers a kingdom far better than Moses, no, he stood before the kings of his day. He stood before the religious leaders and before Herod and before Pilate. And what did he do? He showed mighty powers and wonders. He said, if you won't listen to me, at least listen to the works themselves. But the people refused to listen. And here's the difference that you need to get when you read the story. Jesus is not like Moses. Jesus is not like Pharaoh. Because while their cost came at great cost to themselves, his cost came at great cost to himself. The death of the firstborn. Because we see a God that would rather die than kill his enemies. 
You go forward and you see this Moses and setting the people free. He leads them to the Red Sea. And if you never got this, it's a pretty cool story. The waters split and they're going way up over their head. And so what you would have to say is literally Moses baptized the people. To baptize means to go all the way to the bottom, all the way under the surface of where the waters reside above you. That's where they found themselves walking the ocean floor. And they were under the surface of everything that was happening. He baptized them doing what? Separating them from the slavery of their past to the, the freedom that is in their future. And when they got to the other side, what happened? They saw their enslavers dead in the water behind them. In the same way Jesus came as the living water. When you read about the Red Sea suddenly coming and animating, y'all, it's Jesus. Jesus is the water that animates to do what? To baptize us, to separate us from the slavery of our past. Because if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. And what you find today, whether you know it or not, if your emotions haven't caught up, if you got up today and you could keep your feet on the ground because you couldn't celebrate, it just means that your soul is catching up with the reality of your spirit. And it's this, that your enslavers are dead. Mm -hmm. He disarmed every enemy and made a public spectacle of them. And now you are a new creation, baptized, and on the other side, freedom. So where does it go? The Father came to set struggling hearts free. This is what you see. Moses leads people out of the slavery of Egypt. But Jesus leads people out of the slavery of the Egypts of ego and evil and emptiness. See, the first question for us this morning is this. Where do you need to be free? Do you need to be free this morning of a kingdom of ego? We live in a consumer culture. Everything is all about me. Even the way we go to church is like choosing an apartment store. Which one's going to have the sales that I want? Oh, they asked for a cost I'm not willing to pay. I'll go to the one down the street. We live in a consumer culture, and it has flooded the people of God. So as a result, we find a lot of people that are miserable because they spend all of their days thinking about themselves. How will I protect myself? How will I provide for myself? How will I position myself? Or maybe they're looking for possessions that somehow are going to please themselves. In a few minutes, we're going to give an opportunity that if that's it, you said there's too much of myself in my story. We're going to give an opportunity for you to step out of the Egypt of ego. The second one I would say, though, that he sets us free from is the Egypt of evil. That word evil in the Old Testament, it sounds so bad, right? Like evil. Ooh. You know what evil literally means? Bad. It's bad. It's rotten. It's not leading to life. It's not going where you want to go. So the question would be, where is it right now? That some substance or some attitude and mindset you've taken in your heart, if you're being honest, it could be hidden. It could be one of these things that everybody considers a great shame, or it could be celebrated. See, we have a poison called success in our culture that everybody would cause to climb the ladder to our own demise. It could be hidden and secret, or it could be celebrated, but where is it that you have something to say, you know what, this is poisonous to my soul. Jesus came to set struggling hearts free of that. The third one, which we often miss, is this. We talk about sin. Sin means to miss the mark. We either miss the mark by ego or evil or emptiness. Where is it right now that you'd have to look and say, you know what, I'm putting on a brave face. I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying to be strong. I'm trying to pick myself up by my bootstraps, whatever the heck that means. <laughs> but if I'm being honest, it is not well with my soul. I feel buried 
by a million things that I can't figure out. Like Pastor Chris said, I'm at my wits and I'm not living. Jesus came to set free struggling hearts. In just a minute, we're going to do that. The second one is this. We look at the life of Moses. We see that the Father came to feed hungry souls. Now, Hollywood loves certain stories of the Bible, and they love the story of the Exodus all the way up to when they cross the Red Sea and they go and everybody's waiting. Hi, we're free. Bye. See you later. And then the credits roll. I wish somebody would give a movie of what happened immediately after that. Actually, I don't want them to because it would be the worst movie ever. It would be called Exodus 2, Winding and Wandering in the Wilderness. That would be the name of the movie. And it's immediately after our credits roll that they run into their first sign of danger. They see the first enemy coming up behind them. They're like, we're free, we're free, we're free. And they say, oh, there's Egyptians. And they turn this quick and they said, listen, it was better off when we were slaves, Moses. We wish that you would leave us there so we wouldn't have to die out here in the wilderness. We wish we were dead. A little bipolar, those uh, Israelites coming out. You know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of this. Like the time when you as a parent have the time when your kids are coming all the time saying, we're bored, we're bored, we're bored. And so they beg you to take them on a fun trip. And so you save up the money, you store up the vacation days, you make an elaborate plan, you clean the house, you pack the bags, you, you pack little lunches, and you put them in Ziploc bags, and you put everybody's name on a Sharpie marker, and you're like, oh, it's going to be so great. And you get on the road, and within 30 minutes you start hearing whining in the wilderness from the back, don't you? Are we there yet? Somebody's touching me. I'm bored. And you just keep, like, Hakuna Matata. Let's keep going. And you keep driving. And you get to the happiest place on earth. And you get just past that smiley person that takes your ticket. And you're pretty sure they're smiling because they just extorted legally several thousands of dollars out of your pocket. <laughs> Hi. We're so happy you're here. Like, I want you to die. Right? And you get on the other side. And you're barely into your day, and when do you start hearing whining in the wilderness? It's hot. These lines are so long. I'm hungry. Once again, I'm bored. And then it hits. You ready? When are we leaving? It's 9.30 in the morning. It's a $5,000 day. When are we leaving? So again, Akuna Matata, parents. You encourage them to just relax. And enjoy themselves, and then your kids give you the look. You know the look, don't you? It's the look that says all the things they can't actually say to you. It's the look that if we could get it verbalized, it's this. You ready? I hate you. <laughs> I hate me. I hate them. I hate the sun. I hate this dumb line. It would be better had you left me in the slavery of my school. <laughs> I want to die. Right? That's the look that we see, and you think, yay! You know, I have two theories on vacations, why dads on vacations are always filming everything. I think one is dads are trying to escape to their own happy place. See the kids going, they're like, look, ducks, I'm going to go over here, right? The other one I think is a little more sinister. I think some dads, when they're watching, that their kids are starting to turn on them. It's kind of like a Blair Witch-style video diary. Right? <laughs> they stay turn on me. I was last seen outside the Bible story says that Moses was the most patient man on earth. And goodness gracious, he needed to be. 
Moses, no sooner than he started leading the people, he was receiving the Ten Commandments from God while they were breaking all of them at the bottom of the mountain. The people were so filled with angst, it says, for 40 years, from sunrise to sunset, Moses spent his time mediating civil court cases. And there were so many of them, he had to build a government structure just so he could survive. And yay for Moses, he gets the worst cases. They say anything we can't figure out, the ones that are really, really, really bad, from morning to night, Moses, you deal with those. And these are the people of God and the people that are supposed to be filled with his freedom. What you see is this, Moses is exhausted, and it's getting worse. And so God provides manna in the desert, literally bread that comes from heaven down to the ground provided for each day. And this is what you find for 40 years. The manna in the desert kept them alive, but it didn't feed their hunger. Because it was their souls that were groaning for life. They needed to be filled and satisfied. So I want to say this to you right now. If you find yourself in the midst of a groaning world and you're running and doing your best and you're getting exhausted trying to feed everybody enough, I want to say this. As a child of God, you are a host or hostess who leads the world to the seat where God alone can satisfy their hunger. But you cannot be the food that sufficiently appeases the apathetic, tempers the thankless, coddles the complaining, insulates the insecure, or stabilizes the suspicious. And to the degree you try, you will burn out, and they will starve. Because it is pride that compromises to feed someone where love can only lead them. Please hear me. You aren't sufficient to change the hearts of hungry and grumbling and groaning and often in our culture, I find that what we call tireless patience to not give up on someone is actually enabling dysfunction where we need courageous direction. See, if I love you, then what I actually need to say is this. You won't find life where you're wallowing, and my arms are open, but I can't follow you there. I'm going to come and I'm going to be a host. I'm going to open my arms and I'm going to show you the seat where it is, but I can't go with you there. I want to speak to moms specifically. For years as a youth pastor, I watched so many moms wanting to shield their kids from the pain of growing up and often from the consequences of their own behavior. I watched them again and again and again in the church and at their school and in the world when life got hard, they withdraw and put them somewhere else. I'm going to take them to another happy place. People don't like them at this place, so I'm going to take them to that place. People aren't nice to them and don't talk to them in this youth group, so I'm going to go to another youth group. People don't like them at this school, so I'm pulling them out. And listen, I understand that there are times we've got to make a change like this, but I'm talking about a pattern that I saw again and again and again. I saw so many moms step in and rescue their kids. And then as I watched the pattern, you could predict it over the years. I watched as the years would go, mom's energy would go down and down and down and down as more and more and more of her soul came to feed this child that was hurting. And mom was clearly suffering. Why? Because they didn't realize that she allowed this wayward child to lead both of them further into the wilderness. There's a reason the prodigal's father, with a broken heart, let his adult son leave in Rome because he knew you can't coerce a heart to life. You can only call way back home. 
So in the story, we see he stood on the property line with his arms wide open. But listen, he didn't leave or redefine the place of health and life to follow his son's foolish wandering and what he thought was satisfying. I've seen too many tender hearts of moms and dads and friends run themselves ragged in perpetual drama and dysfunction. And I want to say this, some of you, you're going to be at the place, this is my life for years. Okay, I have a very shepherding heart. My life for years was, I'm just always surrounded by drama. It's just so hard. I'm always surrounded by drama. And finally, the Lord said, great, do you want to get up and leave that place? Because I'm not found in the land of drama. I'm found in the land of life. You need to come and sit before me, and then you invite them out. But you've got to stop getting in that drama and calling it compassion. If we're being honest, what's driving all of that is pride. It's that we believe in that moment that we can be their food instead of courageously leading them to the God who alone is food. Love leads where pride leads. If you love somebody in your life that is struggling and groaning, I beg you, be a host. Be a hostess. Point the way to Jesus. Open up your arms. Tell them, just like he will never leave or forsake them, you won't either. But listen, refuse to empower an orphan spirit's new narrative of their new labels and their new ins and outs and their new enemies. Because, listen, that's going all over the world. We've got this blame culture, and then we've got this, this place where everybody is virtue signaling all over the place. These are bad guys, and these are bad guys, and these are bad guys, and these are bad guys. We're going on a million revolutions in the wilderness, and I'm telling you, it won't satisfy the Jesus well. That's good. So we see it in the life of Moses. Moses finds himself in the wilderness. And he cries out to God to provide manna and quail from heaven to fill the hunger of groaning souls in the desert. And the people eat, but sadly no one was satisfied. In contrast, maybe you missed this. Maybe you wondered what the heck was all that bread from heaven stuff about. Because Jesus came as the bread from heaven. And what did he do? He broke his body as the manna from heaven to feed groaning souls in the desert where he could say, take and eat my body because he alone can satisfy. See, Moses gives people food in the desert, but Jesus is the food in the desert. He says, I give my body. Take and eat. So the question for us is where are you trying to satisfy your heart or theirs? In your own strength. In just a minute, we're going to lay that down. But there's one third place that we see in the life of Moses, the heart of our father, and it's this. The father came to finish your strife. We reached the place that I'd have to say is one of my wife's least favorite parts of the Bible, my compassionate bride. We get to the end of Moses' life. Moses has now lived 120 years, and we find out on a single page that Moses not going to be able to enter the promised land. A 120-year journey of this mostly faithful man, and it ends bittersweet. See, the promised land represents rest, but Moses couldn't enter because when we look at all of his days, all 120 of his years were marked by restlessness. The first 40 years of Moses' life, I call his first 40 years, 40 years of wandering. He was born into an enemy kingdom. He was not Egyptian, but he grew up with them. He had this feeling that he didn't belong. He lived in their courts, but that wasn't. And then he saw the Israelite people that were his people, and he tried to stand up and defend them, but they cast him out too. And so he ran, rejected, into the desert. That was his first 40 years. 
Second 40 years of Moses' life, you know what I'd call it? His wandering. You seeing a pattern? Moses finds himself hiding out in the desert. He gets domesticated during this time. He raises up a family. But what we find is that the liberator of the people spends his days alone leading a bunch of sheep. God was in the midst of refining him here. A burning bush shows up and speaks to him. And what you find is that Moses is restless because he's arguing with shrubbery the whole time. <laughs> and finally he says, well, I, 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 I stutter a lot. I, I, I don't have a good voice. Why? Because, listen, what's happening coming out of his lips is all the restlessness of his heart. I'm going to say that wasn't just a speech impediment. Moses lived a stuttering life before the Lord. A striving life that was restless. Finally, he relents. He goes in, he frees the people. We get one scene that looks really great. That's where Charlton Heston comes in, right? <laughs> then we step into this third 40 years. You know what they're literally called in the Bible? The years of wilderness wandering. He sets the people free, and then he's filled with this continual whining. It says that Moses was the most patient man on earth, but by the end of the story, it's clear. It's been his willpower that has held it together. Moses' patience was more impressive than yours. That's what the Bible says. You know what you find at the end of the story? It wasn't enough. Finally, one day, they're groaning, they're groaning, they're groaning, and Moses looks at people, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. He says he takes his staff, and he cries out, though he knows that God alone is his provider, and he says, shall I make water for you in this wilderness? And he strikes the rock twice, and water comes out. And God tells him, because of this, Moses, you can't enter the promised land. So my wife asked a question. She says, is that God punishing Moses? And I want to tell you my answer. No. Because the promised land represented rest, and if Moses had entered in that place, he wouldn't rest there. He would continue to strive to be their provider. Over time, what they would do is they would venerate and honor him and make him a god, just like Pharaoh, and they would find themselves in a new land, but it would be Egypt all over so the father, in his goodness, calls Moses to come upon another mountain, to come home, and to rest. Three mountains in Moses' life. But the first mountain, it says he received the glory of God, and his face radiated like a human light bright. So much that the people revered him. But it says Moses then came down and he covered his face so the people wouldn't see the glory that was fading. Between the mountains... Moses spent his days struggling and striving to provide. So God calls him to another mountain. He says, nobody's going to know your death place because I don't want them to honor you as a God. We don't see Moses again until he shows up in the pages of the New Testament on another mountain. And once again, he's radiating with a glory that is unearned and unfading. And we see something different we haven't seen in 120 years of his journey. Moses is finally at rest. Moses' stuttering soul is finally free. And we see then, as, as the people look, as the disciples look on, and there's Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, their greatest heroes. They're lifted up and they're radiated with Jesus. And there would be the temptation to say, great, we're going to put Jesus with Moses and the prophets until the father speaks and he says this. Listen, he says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And it says when they looked up, Jesus alone was on the mountain. Yeah. What's the story? 
Moses can't free your struggling heart. Moses can't feed the hunger of your soul. And Moses can't finish your striving. He couldn't even finish his own. But in these last days, the Father has spoken to us in the language of a son. This is my son. He alone will give you rest and freedom and satisfaction. Listen to him. Psalm 46, it says it this way. It says, cease your striving and know that I am God. So we see in Moses' life, Moses carved the regulations that were God's law. Moses wrote the legislation of God's law onto stone, and it was a law that they could not keep. And so what did he do? In anger at their rebellion, he broke it. In contrast, Jesus came and completed the requirements of the law. You are no longer under law, you are under grace. He took 613 laws that Moses chiseled out on stone, and he said, no, I've written a new law. One law that becomes two laws that change everything on your heart. It's called the law of love. The law that I've written is you're now free to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Your broken heart, your struggling heart, your unfinished heart, the things you haven't figured out yet in your heart. Love me with everything, and I will show you how to love your neighbors yourself. And listen, do we fail at that every day? Can we be honest? We fail at loving God every day. We fail at loving our neighbors ourselves every day. Now listen, here's the difference. When Moses saw it, he broke the law over the people. When Jesus saw it, he broke himself to end our anger and our rebellion. What a God we serve. Moses patiently led people in their wandering through much disobedience. Moses exhibited great restraint, and he was honored as the most patient man on earth. But Jesus, in contrast, is patience itself. Love is patient, and God is love. And it says, in his patience, he wants no man, no woman, no child to perish, but everybody to come to life. So it says, some days, when it looks like evil people are getting away with things they're doing, don't misunderstand the Lord's patience as weakness. Moses was patient. But Jesus is patience. And what is he doing? On planet Earth today, he's equipping us to honor others and to reflect his patience on the earth. Finally, it's this. Moses exhibited great strength, showing mercy until that mercy ended. Moses got angry and struck a rock. He did it to quench their thirst and to end their groaning. And because of this, Moses was not able to enter the promised land. But by contrast, Jesus is the source of unending mercy. Lamentations yeah. 3 says, his mercies never come to an end. Jesus shows up in the story as well. Listen, Moses struck a rock, but Jesus was the rock that struck himself to quench our thirst and to end our groaning. Why? Because Jesus is the promised land, the Hebrew says, whose rest we can presently Moses was called into a rest he couldn't enter by striving, but Jesus is rest, and you can't enter him by striving. So the question is, where do we need to let go of the reins of control and finally rest? What does true rest in your life look like? I want to end this morning with a scripture that Jesus said that I think we have completely misunderstood. We missed the forest for the trees. John 14, 6. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I want to propose to you that we have read this verse far too narrowly. Jesus is not saying, I'm the way so that you can pray a prayer, confess your sins, and join the Jesus Club where you go to heaven one day when you die. Because there are millions and millions and millions of people on this earth that have done that. And presently, they are still buried under the struggle of their sin and their striving and their restlessness. Their souls are unsatisfied. They are living as Thoreau said lives of quiet desperation. No, when Jesus showed up and said, I am the way, what he was saying is this. The first Adam came as the way to be human and he failed. I'm the new way to be human. I'm the way back to experience love for God and Father. Somebody right now is just like, ooh, that's a Switchfoot song. They got it in the Bible. <laughs> Imagine that. I'm the way to the Father who frees you and feeds you and fulfills you, and nothing else and no one else will be able to do it. See, Moses' story showed up as a mirror in the desert to show us that the most patient man on earth couldn't fulfill his destiny, which is something we talk about all the time today. Listen, he couldn't even lead his own soul. But there in the pages of Moses, we find the Father who came as our freedom and as our true food to finish our striving. He alone is the burning bush who right now is making you holy ground in the midst of the wilderness. The question is if we'll draw near, take off our shoes, and come. Would you stand with me? And I want to get right to a moment of decision right now because I ask some questions that are so important. So I'm just going to ask that you would close your eyes right now and place your hand on your heart because there are three questions that I want to bring to us. I'm going to ask for our ministers to come right to the altar. Because I'm going to give three different calls. If you need ministry this morning, I'm going to ask you to come right away. The first question I want to ask is this. Where is it time to be free of a prison of your own ego? Maybe you're one and you say, that's me. All of my days are consumed with my fears of how people see me, what people are going to say about me, how I'm going to provide for me. It's always me, 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 and I'm done with it. I want him to set me free of the kingdom of me. Maybe there's some place that you know Jesus needs to set you free of something that is evil. It might be celebrated in our culture, but it's poison to your soul. You're looking right now and saying, I have this thing, and I've tried so many plans, but I can't shake it. I've been striving and struggling in the desert. And I want to come for Jesus to set me free today. Maybe this morning it's your own emptiness. That you've tried and you put on a brave face. you tried to be strong. you tried to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. But you're struggling. You don't even know why. You want to be happy. You hear messages that talk about joy and you just condemn yourself more. If that's you right now, this morning because of ego or evil or emptiness, you're struggling and you're saying, I want to be free. I'm going to ask you right away to leave your seat to come right here to the altar, and allow these ministers to start ministering to you. That's the first charge I'm going to give. If right now there's a place, listen, you're hearing the message, don't do the thing we do in American culture, where you go, wow, that was a nice message. I'm going to take that home and digest it and figure it out. That's still you trying to be your savior. Mm -hmm. 
you've come in and you say, I'm stuck. I'm at my wit's end. I'm out of answers. Don't leave this moment. Come to the altar. Come to Jesus waiting to set you free. The second charge I want to give with your hand on your heart is this. Is there anybody this morning that you find you're weary from trying to feed hungry souls? You're a mom or a dad or a friend, and the groaning of other people is wearing you out and breaking your heart. And you're seeing this morning that all you've wanted to do is just be patient, just to stand with them. But you've been trying to feed them where only love can lead them. And you need courageous love this morning. You need an anointing of courageous love. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to step out. I'm going to ask you to come right now to one of these ministers and just let them pray for you. You see right now that you've been following these people groaning, and most of your days look like whining in the desert, and it's not your whining, it's everybody else's. And you're caught up in the dysfunction and the drama, and you want that cut. Without you cutting what it looks like to love, I want to tell you, ever since I stepped out of drama, I've been far more effective in setting people free from it. I've also walked in a community of people that when I get too, uh, too close to my own drama, call me out of it. The final question I want to ask this morning is this. Is there any place where God is telling you it's time to let go of the reins of control? You've been trying to provide for your family. You've been like Moses, striking the rock in the wilderness. You've been getting mad at your kids because they haven't obeyed. You've been getting mad at your spouse because what hasn't come together. You grumble all the time against your employer for what they didn't come through and they didn't do. And you need to shift your focus where Jesus again is your savior and your provider. He again is sufficient. You need to get them off the hook. now if your heart is struggling, if your soul is starving, or if you're just ready to be done with striving, our ministers are going to be right here to pray for you. So I'm going to ask even now, just come. If the Lord is speaking to your heart, just come. Allow them to come into agreement with you for what heaven has already purchased. Father, you are good. Father, you are good. We ask for streams in the wilderness. We thank you.